Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards and welcome to this January 2020 edition of this podcast. Yeah, so Simon's away this month, so we are trying to step into his very big shoes and update you with the fantastic papers that we've got in the January issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. Uh, We've gone through the papers together, Sarah and I, and we've picked out some real highlights for you. I think there are some real gems in here, and we're going to start off with a bit of a Sheffield showcase. There are three really nice papers from the group in Sheffield. They're quite complex. They made my head hurt as I read them, so we'll try and make sense of them. And Sarah, you're going to take us through the first of those papers. Yeah, so the first paper is titled Frequent Attendance at the Emergency Department Shows Typical Features of Complex Systems Analysis of Multi-Centre Linked Data. And the first author is uh, Christopher Burton. So essentially, this paper is looking at frequent attendance um, in the ED. And we know, and I'm sure you know, Rick, that you know this is a worldwide problem and that we see it in emergency departments across the UK and the worldwide. And what they did with this paper was look at a data set of routine collected data and health records from 13 hospital trusts providing emergency care within the Yorkshire and Humber region, which has a population base of about five and a half million. And this whittled down to about 3.6 million attendances in these 13 hospital trusts, so massive data. Essentially, using some very complex statistics, and I suggest you go and have a little look at the paper, what they've managed to sort of pull together and try and unpick, you know, what happens with these sort of patients that come in for multiple times. And essentially, what they've come up with is that the frequent attender or the patient that comes frequently it's not the only thing that needs to be looked at, really. Um, it is actually a massive, complex issue. And actually, not only should we be looking at the individual patient and trying to um, work out what needs to be done with these recurrent frequency attenders, but actually we probably need to look at it as a, a system-wide issue and looking at it from a primary care, community care, maybe the health, uh, the primary psychiatric community services. And it's actually a much more complex uh, problem than the individual patient. And I think, Rick, I don't know what you think. I mean, I was a bit surprised by the finding with this, what what they found with this data set, that essentially it's not just about the individual, it's the big complex system that's behind the individual that probably needs to be looked at as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I mean, it kind of makes sense, I guess. But let's just bring in the second paper on this from the same group, because yeah. uh, that kind of helps us to try and build the picture on what this is all telling us. So I'll tell you a little bit about that one. It's by the same first author, Christopher Burton, and from the same group in Sheffield. And in the second paper, they've looked at whether they've called it heterogeneity of reasons for attendance in the emergency department predict frequent emergency department attendances. So what they mean by that, if people attend for lots of different reasons, does that predict that they're going to go on and become more frequent attenders? So just to tell you briefly what they did, they've got 15,000 health records from patients who'd attended the ED at least five times in a calendar year. And then they've looked at the ECDS diagnoses and they've categorized them into 14 different categories. So they measured the heterogeneity of the reasons for attendance by looking at how many different categories of ECDS diagnoses the uh, patients fell into. 
And essentially, they found that if you attend for lots of different reasons, then you're more likely to go on to attend more frequently, essentially. And there's only a weak link between uh, attending more frequently and advancing age. And that makes them think that actually, this isn't because of multimorbidity that people are attending for multiple different reasons. It's more complex than that. Perhaps these patients have more complex psychosocial needs. Now, this is where the, the link becomes a bit difficult between the two papers, I think, Sarah, because your your paper suggests that we need a system-wide approach rather than necessarily focusing on individual care needs. Whereas in the second paper on heterogeneity, they suggest that what we might be able to do in future is look at the reasons people are attending in an automated way and use artificial intelligence to sort of flag that this patient might have attended several times for different reasons and they're at high risk of, of going on to become a frequent attender. And therefore, we might do active case management for them. So I guess that's bringing in that individual proactive patient care, whereas the other paper is recommending a system-wide response. The challenge is how do we put those two together? Yeah, and I think, you know, we were talking about this before we, we were recording, and, and it is challenging because they almost um, are, you know, the yin and yang of each other. And I think I think ultimately, between both papers, it just shows that the patients who attend regularly or frequently are often complex and the systems that we're working in are complex and it probably needs a two-prong approach. One, looking at the individual cases and the individual patients and seeing, but actually recognising probably within that, that actually there are some systemic complex issues that are surrounding that. I don't know what you think there, Rick. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, I think this is telling us that, you know, there's a big piece of work going on here and that the solution to um, managing the, the, the challenge that we have with frequent attendees at the emergency department probably requires a bit of both, doesn't it? You know, it probably requires a system-wide solution and it requires, you know, some active case management on an individual level as well. And I think, you know, it requires probably some focus time not only from the ED, but probably from other departments within the hospital and the community. And this can save time and save money in the future, but it is time heavy to begin with, I think. Absolutely. And then I guess that brings us on to the third paper from Sheffield, which you've also looked at, Sarah. Yeah, so the third paper, um, so this time with a slightly different slant, is looking at um, paediatric patients and the title of this paper is non-urgent emergency department attendances in children a retrospective observational analysis um, and this for the first author for this paper is a Rebecca Simpson so as we all know uh, you know non-urgent emergency department attendances is a, is a problem not only within adult populations but pediatrics and I think within um you know the literature there probably isn't a huge amount that is done within children in the context of children so what they did here was was uh look at a data set from uh, a big database within again yorkshire and humberside uh looking at uh children's ed attendances between april 2014 all the way through to march 2017 what they used um, as the definition, and I think that's really important here, of uh, non-urgent attendances uh, were identified using a previously validated definition. And the definition refers to 
all first-time attenders, not a follow-up attendance to a type 1 emergency department, who were then identified as not receiving any treatments, investigations or referrals which would require the facilities provided by a type 1 ED. And what they found uh, with their results was that children aged 1 to 4 were more likely to have more attendances. Those often happened um, out of hours. And this was interestingly different to those that were less than 1. And one to four-year-olds spent a lot less time within the emergency department than elsewhere. But I think what's really interesting about this paper, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, Rick, is that it's not the group of patients that I thought that were going to be using the department as much as possible now. And And I say that because I... You know, I work in paediatrics at the moment and I seem to see a lot of less than one-year-olds versus what this paper was, those one to four-year-olds. But I think overall, you know, the bottom line is with this paper is that those that are less than five tend to be using the department quite a lot. It tends to be out of hours and they tend to be in the department for a reasonable amount of time. And I think that's, you know, we need to look at going forward how we manage that as a system both in hospital and and within the community. Yes, I think it was particularly striking that they, you know the the one to five year uh, age group seemed to be using the department a lot for non urgent reasons and particularly out of hours. And I, I guess you know as a, as a parent you can understand that you know um, a lot of the problems seem to you know happen around bedtime or after bedtime. Children wake up with problems or. Uh, come back from nursery and school and it takes a while to get to realize that you actually need to go and seek attention and I guess what this might be telling us is that we maybe lack provision for them outside the emergency department outside of routine working hours and access to non-emergency care could be improved yeah and I think we have to also be careful with the definition that they used here so just because somebody's come into the emergency department I think and not had anything happen to them doesn't mean that they shouldn't have not come to the emergency department. Um, And I think I reflect on, you know, in recent months, some of the patients that I've seen and actually, you know, they, they needed to come to the emergency department, but I didn't need to do an awful lot with them. So I just, whilst I recognize what this paper says, I think we just have to be conscious of the definition they've used because that may not be similar to other definitions. um, Rick. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I've noticed, you know, a really hard one, isn't it, for for the team to do to define what's a non-urgent attendance. But there's, you know, there's all of this uh, issue of working under the conditions of uncertainty, both for parents and under other healthcare providers, you know, when the symptoms could reasonably have been something serious. Okay, it turned out not to be, and we didn't have to do a lot about it. But based on the information we had, it might have been the most appropriate thing to do to come to the ED. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the bottom line is, I think we probably need to think about resources for those under five out of hours and just making sure that we can maximise those resources, not necessarily in the emergency department, but maybe out in the community. Um, And thinking about how we do that is probably a complex uh, topic and probably outside the scope of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us on to the next paper that we can cover, which is a systematic review, sticking with the paediatric theme. So Georgios Alexandridis has uh, 
the first author of a study looking at a systematic review of point of care ultrasound for diagnosing skull fracture in children. So they found seven studies that looked at this problem and all of those studies included children who were already undergoing a CT scan for a head injury. And they pulled the data from 925 patients and showed that point-of-care ultrasound had a sensitivity of 91% with a specificity of 96% for detecting a skull fracture. So that gives you a negative predictive value of 97% and a positive predictive value of 88%. So, I mean, that's not bad for ruling out. Is it? Only a th- there's a 3% chance of a skull fracture if you have a normal POCUS. So the question is, would you be happy with that? Will that influence our practice? And given that these patients were already undergoing a CT scan, could we see points of care ultrasound having a place in the paediatric emergency department for children with a head injury? What do you think, Sarah? Oh, I think that's quite an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, I mean, as a you know, paediatric emergency medicine is my subspecialty interest, so... I don't do very many CT heads and I don't see a huge number of skull fractures for for a big centre. But in answering your question, I think POCUS could be really useful because actually I don't really want to irradiate a brain unless I really have to because, you know, the life impact of that, particularly with young developing brains, is huge. So I think it has the potential. Um, But I guess, you know, thinking about other uses of POCUS that we have in the emergency department, you know, I guess it's it's probably got better sensitivity and specificity than some of the others that we use. So I think, you know, I think I'd be happy with, you know, clinical gestalt and, you know, a feeling of if it's negative that, you know, I probably wouldn't do a CT. I don't know what you think, Rick. Yeah, that's interesting. So I don't practice in the paediatric emergency department anymore because um, of my uh, research commitment. So um It's been a little while since I did paediatric emergency medicine. But, you know, it takes me back to the days when we used to use skull x-rays. And I am old enough to remember when we used skull x-rays for children with head injury. And I remember the figures uh, that we used to use um, and how it affected your sort of post-test probability of having a neurosurgically significant head injury. And if you had a normal skull x-ray, we used to say there's about a 1 in 30,000 probability uh, that you'll have a neurosurgically significant injury in uh, somebody who's fully alert. So I guess, you know, although there's a 97% negative predictive value for, for skull fracture, if we ended up with a, a you know, a, a probability of, tr- of neurosurgically significant injury that's as low as one in 30,000, then actually I could see this being uh, potentially useful for pay- for children who've got an indication for a CT head but you'd like you said, Sarah, you'd like to avoid irradiating them. So, so maybe. But um, of course, you know the other thing is it's got a sensitivity of ninety-one uh, percent in the people who used ultrasound in the in the study. And of course, we know that there's massive variation between uh, users of ultrasound. So, training would be a key issue. Keeping with the paediatric theme, though, moving on, you've got another uh, interesting study looking at I think time and motion in the paediatric emergency department. Yeah, so I picked this paper because I was like, oh, time and motion, that sounds very sort of sci-fi and a bit different out there. And this paper by Robert Stellman is essentially looking at um, how much time do doctors spend providing care to each child in the ED, a time and motion study. And essentially what they 
did was they looked at the care being provided to children of all triage categories, so green all the way up to red. And what they were trying to work out was, you know, how much time does it take for a doctor to see each of these patients? How it worked was, so on each day, basically, they had a special time and motion observer who was basically picked up the first eligible patient that the doctor had and would start, you know, taking down notes um, at that point that that patient was picked up. And they carried that all the way through until the patient had a disposition or they died or something like that till, you know, the next bit of their care was, you know, planned going forward. Um, And to give you an example, you know, of that. So, for example, if the doctor saw a patient um, for one hour and another doctor also joined in and was with that patient for an hour, that would be the equivalent of a total of two hours of doctor time per patient. So to give you a a context of that. And what was really, really interesting, uh, I think this is potentially significant for staffing the way that they did it, was that um, their outcomes um, for actually how much time is spent. So to give you an idea, um, in this study, they found that for a green triage category patient, the average time was about 31 minutes. Um, so, you know, thinking of your minor trips, sprains, you know, sort of your minor injury type things all the way up to red. So, you know, your cardiac arrests and your serious life threatening diagnosis up to the median time there was 96 minutes. Um, and that probably is different to what you'd expect to find within the literature that currently is out there, you know, and the benchmark that they were using for their green category here was 15 minutes and their red category was 50 minutes, which probably fits with what I've seen before in the literature. So I think what's really interesting is that actually we might be understaffing or underappreciating the total time that is taken to see a patient and you know I'm thinking about you know actually going to get the notes getting the patient finding a space turning on the computer you know examining the patient you know the time while you're waiting them for them you know to go to x-ray and things like that actually I think we've probably underestimated that for a little while and I think you know I think this has the potential to reshape how we think about staffing departments Rick I, I, what do you think yeah I think it's really interesting it's really valuable work to go into this level of detail and it kind of reflects what I might have expected them to find that you know um, it takes a lot longer than you anticipate even things for us like you know finding a space to see the patient uh, logging into the computer, getting a printer to work, all of those kind of things, you know, can add to the time it takes to see a patient. And if we haven't accounted for all of that when we plan for our, you know, our, our staffing, then actually, we, 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 like you say, we might actually be understaffing the department for the demand that we have. And I think, you know, it's probably just appreciating that patients take a lot longer than we think to manage them. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a really interesting study. I guess let's move on to the next paper, which has a similar kind of feel to it, really. Um, and that they've they've looked here at uh, the effect of um, of working a night shift on our clinical judgment and our performance. So uh, this study is by uh, Danielle Bartlett, 
And it's about, it looks at the effect of sleepiness on clinical decision-making amongst paramedic students. So a really interesting design. They got some second-year paramedic students uh, to uh, take part in a simulation study. And they, they had two uh, simulated night shifts, 13 hours long, to sort of mirror the shifts that paramedics in their area were working. And they gave them, I think, 10 simulated cases across those shifts uh, to look at. And they measured performance. So they, they, they had a, a scale to look at how they were, perfor- how they were performing um, from a clinical perspective. And they also asked the paramedics how sleepy they felt and how uh, motivated they felt. And some of the findings will come as absolutely no surprise that as the night shift went on, the paramedics felt more sleepy and their motivation actually went down, particularly later on in the night shift after 11.30 p.m. And also there was some decrease in performance as well on those uh, clinical scenarios. Not in everything, some of the measures, they didn't find any difference. I think on visual reaction and things, they didn't actually find any uh, any significant difference. But, uh, but still, important effects that have been documented, they kind of mirror my own experiences, uh, that when you're doing a, a night shift, um, I used to find them particularly, you know, you get to 5 a.m., that was the time when I was really flagging. I think these night shifts started earlier and they found that the flagging started um, earlier in those shifts. But um, I think that's just really important to recognize and document. Uh, even if there's not a lot that we can do about it right now, we should recognize that this is in, this is a, a factor when we're sort of planning for patient care that happens during overnight periods. Sarah, do you, do you think this mirrors your experience and... Um, do you think there's anything we can do about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I found as I'm as I'm getting older, my tolerance to night shifts is certainly getting getting less. And I think particularly, um, you know, as as it's busier than it's probably been for a while, I think my uh, I think the witching hour, as it as it were, at four to five a.m. is is really when it starts to hit me, and I start getting a bit you know grumpy and a bit hangry and and all of that. I think, you know, it, it goes back to basics and, you know, sort of good sleep hygiene, looking after your colleagues, recognising that your colleagues might just need a, a five minutes or 10 minutes just to go and get a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, those are good points. And, you know, the other thing we could bring into that is Jonathan Freund's uh, trial from a little while ago, looking at cross-checking, showing that actually when emergency physicians cross-check their cases with each other, there were significantly fewer patient safety incidents. Maybe we need to be particularly vigilant about that during overnight periods and recognise when our performance might be dipping and and, cross-checking with some colleagues just to make sure that um, we've got everything right, recognising that our judgment might be impaired. So those were two interesting studies there. We'll stick with the pre-hospital theme, I think. Um, we're going to look at incivility next, Sarah. Yeah, so this is a uh, this was a paper done by the first author, Nicola Credland. And this is looking at the incidence and the impact of incivility in paramedicine and a qualitative study. And I think it's really important that you go away and read this paper and, uh, and I'll touch upon it now. And I think it's really sad reading so essentially what they did they took some paramedics that are practicing within the UK they interviewed them and all of them have been a paramedic for over five years and they were interviewing them around sort of their experience of incivility so you know interactions not only with patients but with health other healthcare professionals and overall they found sort of four themes um, that that you know were were critical things around you know the interactions they get at the hospital the interactions around they get with patients um 
how that actually often that they need to take the path of least resistance and the importance of well-being at work. And the conclusion is, which is absolutely no surprise to me, is that um, although it's perceived that rudeness and incivility can be seen as the accepted part of the job, what this study highlights is that this affects the behaviour on the paramedics to the point where actually they are potentially changing how they interact with their patients and other healthcare professionals, which may be detrimental to patient care. And I think it's really sad reading, um, but really important that we remember that when we're interacting with everyone, recognising within ourselves and recognising with them and trying to understand that their point of view is really important. But it's really hard, Rick, and I'm sure you know this as well. Yeah, I think it's a really important paper. It's a very topical issue, particularly now, actually, because I think, you know, in a post-COVID world, uh, tensions can sometimes run high. People are stressed or at the end of their tether. It's, you know, we've had, we're really stretched sometimes. Uh, and so we just really need to be very, very, very careful um, to not let incivility creep in. But it, And it's very nice to have uh, the impact of that documented in this uh, nice study. Shall we move on to the uh, uh, penultimate study I think that we were going to cover, which is also in the pre-hospital area, looking at CPAP for acute respiratory distress. So it's a randomised controlled trial. Really nice to see an RCT published in the EMJ. It's from Perth. And they included patients who were aged over 40 with acute respiratory distress that was unresponsive to treatment for five minutes. And they randomised them either to CPAP or standard care. Really interesting that they did this. You know, we think hard about starting uh, CPAP and non-invasive ventilation for patients in the ED. Uh, perhaps, you know, you'd be thinking about doing arterial blood gases and looking what the PCO2 is before you even consider it. But here, of course, much lower threshold for starting that treatment in the pre-hospital environment. And they looked at different primary outcomes. So first, there was a hospital service centre primary outcome, which was length of stay. And there was no difference in length of stay. And then the other primary outcomes were patient-centred. So that was uh, looking at the, the dyspnea on a visual analogue scale as perceived by the patient and respiratory rate. And for both of those patient-centred outcomes, the patients who got CPAP did better. So they had less subjective dyspnea and there was a difference of around four breaths per minute in the respiratory rate uh, after treatment with CPAP. There was no difference in secondary outcomes, and they included oxygen saturation, intubation rates, mortality, ICU admission. So I guess what that told us is that CPAP didn't appear to improve clinical outcomes, but it made patients feel better, which is really interesting. So that poses a very interesting question. Would that justify the pre-hospital use of CPAP? What do you think, Sarah? Can you see a role for that in the ambulance? Um, I think in a in a post-COVID, I don't think we're in a post-COVID world, but in a current COVID situation, I think it all, will always make me feel a bit anxious at the moment starting uh, CPAP in any setting because obviously it's viewed as an aerosolized generating procedure. However, if we avoid that for a minute, I think if it helps patients, I'm all for that. It's really scary. And I've seen it with lots of patients, as I'm sure you have, Rick, you know, for when you feel as though you can't breathe, um, you're struggling and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die here. I think, you know, if it helps the patients and it's easily doable and it's safe for everyone involved, if it's not going to do any harm, I, I can't see why we can't think about it 
in in the pre-hospital setting. Yeah, that was a really important point. You know, I, I think that uh, as well as that, it'd be nice to ask patients what they think, isn't it? Because like you say, very, very scary symptom. And if it's going to ease that scary symptom, you know, it's it's worth doing, even if it leads to a, equivalent um, clinical outcomes. If we can get patients to feel better quicker, then that's a real positive. So very interesting work. The last one that we wanted to mention was uh, actually one of my own studies. Uh, well, it's not a study. It's a, it's a, it's a review paper, a, a practice review. And the first author was Charlie Reynard, who I work with in Manchester. And it was an output from our Condor group, the COVID-19 National Diagnostic Research and Evaluation uh, Programme, where we've looked at lots of different COVID tests. And here we've provided a, a guide to COVID testing in your emergency department. What are the different types of tests? What are their relative merits? How do we measure viral load with a test? What's the CT value all about? How good are lateral flow tests? Does it matter if your patient's asymptomatic or symptomatic? What about biosafety and the chance that actually doing the test might spread the infection? All these sorts of issues are covered in the practice review. So if you're not completely overwhelmed by COVID and bored by it, and you would really like to know how best to use COVID tests in your emergency department, point of care tests we're talking about, have a read of the review because hopefully it will give you some helpful tips. Do you use COVID testing in your department, Sarah? Yeah, so we've got some point of care testing that, you know, sort of will give you uh, a result, you know, within 30 minutes. And, and that's how our hospital uses, you know, can they go to a COVID ward, non-COVID ward? They're, they're also PCR tested at the same time. So that's that's how we tend to use our COVID testing for point of care. Yeah, that's interesting. And that mirrors the approach. So if you have a read through the paper, you can find out, you know, how sensitive are the tests that you're actually using if you are using a point of care test and how, therefore, that ought to change your cohorting uh, decisions. It's been a real privilege to work with some expert authors on that one. So that's our roundup from January. Sarah, thanks very much for joining me and producing the podcast. Hopefully we've uh, managed to fill Simon's shoes. I'm sure not quite as well as Simon, but, you know, it's been really nice hearing your critical appraisal of the study, Sarah. Uh, that's great. Um, lovely to chat to you, Rick, and um, nice to uh, see what uh, 2022 brings us in the next year. Absolutely. Happy New Year, everyone. All the best for 2022.